again here on Kentucky Caliber. We've been off for a little while and the reason for that is because we had a um, I had a break this uh, for the first part of this year to work on the uh, podcast for VFRL which is Veterans for Responsible Leadership. Uh, I'm actually the producer of that podcast and it's called An Accountable America and that will be showing up on Resolute Square here in the next few weeks we hope and we've been spending a lot of time uh, getting guests lined up and setting up interviews and then actually doing the discussions and the sound editing and the whole process that has to be done for that. Uh, I've learned a whole lot from it. We, um, so far this year, we've actually wrapped production on 11 episodes and we'll have a 12th coming up in here in July with Ann Applebaum. I'm real excited about that one. Can't wait to talk to her on the VFRL podcast. Um, so that's took a lot of time. That's taken a lot of time, and I spent a lot of uh, time doing that. So because I was working on that podcast, I didn't have the time left to do this one. So I knew, as I mentioned on the last, uh, the last show that we posted for this one, would have to wait. I said I would have to wait until we finished uh, most of the production for the VFRL podcast, which we we now have. We'll probably still record a couple of more episodes, but um, we already have enough bank to last enough contact bank for the rest of the year. We'll, we'll be releasing those on a uh, t- twice a month. So every every other week, we'll be releasing or publishing a new uh, episode of the VFRL podcast. And so we've already got content lined up for the rest of 23. And we'll start working on uh, next year. Because next year, of course, with it being an election year, there'll be a lot more to do and a lot of different topics, to, a lot more topics to cover. So uh, we had some fantastic guests on that show. Um, we had the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, Admiral James Stavridis on. We had Congresswoman Mackie Sherrill, really appreciate her time and the Admiral's time. We've had Steve Kornacki from NBC. We've had Elliot Ackerman and several other what I, what I would call high-profile guests. Uh, and that's all thanks to Dan Barkoff, who is the uh, founder and president of VFRL. He's a um, former Navy SEAL, uh, currently works as an emergency room physician, uh, interesting guy. And all of those guests that came on the show, that was all him. Uh, so I, I helped do the interview and talk to the guests, and it was, it was really great to meet them and then prepare the, um, prepare the episode for production. But uh, he got the guests uh, to show up there, so that was I appreciate uh, being uh, invited to be a part of that uh, organization and to be uh, the producer of the podcast. We just went up to New York City. VFRL contributed to uh, one of our other guests, Ken Harbaugh, uh, was a contributor to the film uh, Against All Enemies, which was just released at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. And so VFRL brought everyone up there on the on the senior staff, or rather the executive staff, to actually physically meet in New York City. We, we hadn't done that before. Like, we always talk through Zoom or Skype or Google Meet or something like that, or, or on the phone. We'd never actually been in the same room. Everybody's kind of scattered. Uh, Dan's up there in Vermont. We've got folks down in Florida, out in Colorado, me in Kentucky. So we're in a lot of different places, and it was good to get together and spend a, a couple of days in New York City, not just for the Tribeca Film Festival, but also to meet and, and get to know a little bit better the folks uh, on VFRL staff. We had a great time. 
excuse me, um, we went to the 9-11 Memorial. I'd never actually been there. Um, it's an amazing experience. It's an amazing place. Um, it's actually a humongous museum, too. I mean, I, I work, my day job is a, a museum director, but, but we're, we're a fraction uh, of the size and of the budget of the, the 9-11 Memorial. I mean, it, it's, it's 50 times bigger, if not 100 times bigger than, than we are. Uh, it, it takes up most of a city block. Um, they've got one of the uh, I-beams, one of the, the metal pieces from the actual Twin Towers in there on display. It's like 50 feet tall. So and, and it's just a, a really powerful place, and it was a, it was a great visit, and I really had a good time and, and, and really appreciative to the organization there. So getting back to Kentucky Caliber, so now that we've finished most of the production on the VFRL podcast and Accountable America, now I'll focus, I'll, I'll switch back to Kentucky Caliber because I've got a couple of other things that I wanted to talk about that that really don't fit within the uh, the wheelhouse of VFRL, but they do here on uh, Kentucky Caliber. So this week's um, I, we also added a uh, a written portion on Substack. It's at Substack Kentucky Caliber, and our first written piece is um, the rhyming twenties, and so that's kind of the one I wanted to focus on today, and the basis of it. You know, I started thinking one time. There's a um, an old Mark Twain quote. And he, he wrote once that history doesn't repeat itself, but, you know, it, it does rhyme. And that's sort of what we've seen when you compare the 1920s to the 2020s. Um, the fact that the numbers happen to be, you know, a, a nice, neat century apart in, in sequence really doesn't mean anything. But it's, it's just kind of interesting to see the parallels between those two periods when we think about it. Um, the easy example, I mean... So the 1920s, you, you had just wrapped up the influenza pandem- pandemic, which, depending on who you ask, ended around the summer of 2019 or early 2020, or excuse me, early uh, 1920. So you had the, the influenza pandemic sort of to kick off the, uh, the opening of the 1920s. And of course, today we had the COVID-19 pandemic to kick off the, uh, the 2020s. So that first started, uh, at least here in the United States, around... February and March uh, of 2020 is when it really started having a big impact and shutting down schools and disrupting the economy and uh, all the other impacts that it had. Um, so that's a that's the first one. Uh, there's a lot of other ones though. There's many other different parallels. Um, where I don't know. I don't have any particular order that I want to do these in. Uh, they're they're listed in the uh, the written portion. I just want to touch on a few of them because it sets up the a larger discussion about how the, the forces of history work, which is really why I'm interested in the topic. Um, you know, back in the uh, 1920, you had the uh, prohibition, right? So conservatives, so what we would uh, call today conservatives back then, I guess, uh, social conservatives, um, had succeeded in getting prohibition passed. So they outlawed the sale or distribution of liquor. So today we've had, uh, in 2022, we had another conservative legal victory with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, you had at the, uh, the outset of the 1920s, you know, America had just left, uh, the first world war. So our troops had, had just come home from world war one. And today we have, you know, in 2021, we just had our military forces leave Afghanistan after a, uh, 20 year, uh, deployment on the, what we used to call the global war on terrorism. You also had a lot of new technology. So back in the 1920s, it was radio and automobiles. Today, we've got uh, artem- artificial intelligence. hundred years ago, we had um, a lot of social unrest, uh, labor unrest that was due to uh, disputes between workers and between organized labor 
and employers. And today we, you know, unfortunately have lots of mass shootings and other violent social unrest that, that, that started in the summer of 2020 in the United States. Um, if you think about the cultural things too, I mean, so there's a lot of changes that were taking place culturally at that time period. And, you know, so back then in the 1920s, you had critics, social critics, uh, you know, you had women wearing, you had flappers wearing shorter dresses and you had jazz music. So that's what, you know, back then social critics would call that, for lack of a better term, um, the work of the devil, if you will. And uh, so today it's uh, drag shows and transgenderism. Uh, those are what we call the, the new threats to um, moral purity. And of course, inflation really soared after the end of World War I, uh, just as it did uh, with the onset of the COVID pandemic uh, in 2020. So you put all that together, um, and that's not even all of it. That, that's just like uh, the, the, the most obvious ones. So I would say, you know, based on all that, you know, welcome to the rhyming 20s, right? Because that's sort of where we are. We see a lot of these same forces, you know, playing out today and, and having an impact on our, our daily life and on our institutions, on our government, on our businesses. Um, it just kind of affects everything. And that's, that's similar to the way things played out 100 years ago. Uh, the 1920s, if we take just a moment to think about that decade, were a time of uh, a lot of upheaval. So there's lots of different technological, economic, social, and cultural changes, uh, not just here in the United States, but overseas as well. And so if you, all of those things came together at once, and um, they sort of ushered in a, a very turbulent period, but also a very uh, creative period in our nation's history. Um, automobile sales. So back then, you started seeing automobiles show up. So for before that, it was you know the horse and buggy or trains, or, or, or steamboats. Uh, but by the 1920s, you know, automobiles start becoming pretty prevalent. Like, so pretty soon, almost everybody has one, or, or at least it seems like everybody has one, where today, um, you know, everybody has a smartphone. So that's sort of the technology that's transforming uh, daily life. But the physical appearance, you know, of America itself was, was changed a lot during that time period, too. I mean, you had the Chrysler Building going up in 1928. You had skyscrapers, so a lot of the the skylines of American cities um, were changed in lasting ways. So 100 years ago, you had uh, new construction going up, and you had the landscape sort of becoming what we would know as the uh, the modern um, the modern city skyline, like what they would look like today. They they started taking on that shape um, back in the 1920s, and that's important because that represents the switch from an agrarian society in America to a largely urban society. And what that means is simply that the, the, the majority of people in America now live in urban areas, not necessarily in the downtown areas of major cities, but at least on the, in their suburbs. Um, in the last few years, we have seen a little bit of a shift from that. Uh, some of that is uh, pandemic related. So there has been a little bit of a population loss in cities. Um, that goes against the long-term trend that we've seen over the past century where there's been a steady increase in the number of people going to cities or near cities uh, looking for work. And when they did that, uh, just as they, uh, they started doing it in the 1920s and, and even earlier, um, that, they, that changed the way of life for a lot of folks. You know, they didn't just want to work, they wanted to have fun too. So all of a sudden you have, you know, nightlife and new fashion and new culture uh, as a result of this shift to uh, to urban to an urban society and leaving behind sort of the small town life that had been the dominant sort of the predominant culture that we knew uh, in America before the 1920s, and I think also um, because of that, because we started um, 
really the, the switch to industrialization started gathering a lot of speed. You know, modern consumerism and pop culture, when you think of uh, going to the movie theaters or buying a lot of uh, corporation-made goods on the shelves in your store, a lot of that was really, really found its footing uh, during the 1920s and started growing after that into what we know uh, as the current uh, marketplace today. When you looked overseas, um, 100 years ago as today, there was a lot of violence and chaos back then. So there, there was the collapse of major empires. So the end of World War I brought about the end of three long-established empires, mainly the Romanov, Habsburg, and Ottoman. Those all fell uh, either during or right after World War I. And in their wake, there was just chaos and, and a lot of violence as people fought to establish a new order. And a, a lot of times, and you, we saw this in the Middle East especially, and this still plays out today, a lot of hatreds and, and uh, violent uh, sort of disagreements that had been suppressed by the Ottoman Empire. In other words, the Ottomans kept, this, kept the forces of dissension in check. But when the, the Sultanate collapsed and the Ottoman Empire was no more, now all of a sudden all these different groups that hated each other were, had a, a free hand to go after, the, go after their enemies, and they did. And we still see that playing out today in the Middle East with lots of different violence, uh, Sunni versus Shia, that's a common theme. Uh, that was sort of, it wasn't created by the fall of the Ottoman Empire, but it was unleashed by the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the collapse of the Romanov Empire, of course, plunged uh, Russia into chaos, and what emerged from that was the Soviet Union. So for folks today that are, you know, who say they want to see the Putin's regime collapse, I, I would caution them not to be so quick. Uh, it could always be something worse. So the last time regime the last time there was violent regime change in Russia, we ended up with the Soviet Union for 80 years. So I don't think we want to go and repeat that uh, just because we don't like what the Putin regime is doing. Uh, I just be careful what you wish for would be my, uh, my advice on that. Um, but people looked abroad and they saw all this chaos and, and violence uh, overseas. And they thought, well, if the collapse of all these old orders abroad could birth all these terrifying new monsters, I mean, we started seeing the rise, the, the earlier, the early portions of the rise of new ideologies, especially in Europe. So proto-fascism and communism were starting to take shape um, by the early 1920s, and, and that led to the Red Scare in the 1920s, where there were lots of rumors about you know communist plots to take over America, and the basis for that really was things, events that were happening abroad. I mean, so we saw a communist revolution actually take over the government in Russia. So, you know, centuries established dynasty uh, with the czars was wiped away, and all of a sudden this new ideology had, had taken over. And so people thought, well, if it could happen there, you know, couldn't the same thing happen here? And they, they thought that it could. Um, so violence there um, was, a, was as common uh, 100 years ago as it was today. So a century previous to now, the, the Ukrainians were suffering uh, at the hands of, of Russians just like they are today. Um, and we saw uh, a fear of, of new ideologies taking, taking over then. Um, today, less so about a specific ideology, al although there's still the fear of uh, violence, unrest, and, um, and chaos in America, as we've seen that play out on our own streets, especially since 2020, uh, whereas 100 years ago it was labor-driven. Now it's, it's racial injustice-driven, and this, the result is the same. Uh, you know, folks that are afraid to go out uh, or they're afraid of when the next shooting is going to happen. And all these things are happening, and, and there's all this upheaval, right? And no one really knows for sure 
what the cause is, right? So whenever there's a lot of chaos or violence around, you're, there's always going to be in the waiting, waiting in the wings every time you'll have folks who show up with the wrong answer, a short, simple, but wrong explanation to why all these things are happening. So 100 years ago, it was the communists who are trying to take over. Today, the short, simple, and wrong answer that you get is, well, it's the liberals that are trying to take over or whatever they call the progressives now. I've, it changes so often, I can't keep up with it. But it's, it's like there's liberal Marxists. I mean, there's liberal progressive. I mean, they, they use them in, in all these things. Oh, and, and now you even have critics calling left-wingers fascists, which fascists are actually right-wingers um, by historical precedent. So it's just interesting to hear those uh, terms thrown around. I, I think the main reason people use those terms today uh, is to try to get under each other's skin. I, I think being called a Nazi is one of the few things that, you, that people simply can't ignore. You know, you can ignore a lot of different insults and a lot of different labels, but when someone calls you a Nazi, you have to respond. And I think everyone in, in America knows that. And so to call your critic, you know, or to call your political opponents uh, Nazis or Nazi-like, you know for a fact it's going to get under their skin. And I, I think that's... I think that's one reason why people do it so much, uh, not, not necessarily because there's really a lot of accuracy to it. Um, you know, if you look at the things that happen, um, for example, there's been comparisons, even here in Kentucky, and, and I know Bill Atkins real well who wrote this piece uh, comparing the uh, anti-trans legislation to the Nuremberg Laws. Um, I, I respectfully disagree um, on that, that. I don't think that's a valid comparison, and here's why. Uh, the Nuremberg Laws, which were, were passed in the in, – Early on in the in the Nazi regime in Germany, they took away citizenship for all Jewish people within German territory. So they were no longer German citizens. I haven't seen any of the the trans legislation, and I agree it is anti-trans legislation, by the way. And I agree uh, a lot of it should be repealed, if not all, and, and challenged in court. But that doesn't make the people who wrote it Nazis. Um, they haven't tried to take away citizenship from anybody who's trans, and so that that's a very big difference, I think. Um, we should caution ourselves when we when we engage in those types of comparisons because it's easy to to cry wolf and then until one day it, you, the real thing shows up and then nobody listens. So that's sort of the danger that you have. Um, but even um, even classrooms were, were centers of controversy. Like like just like today, there's a lot of controversy over what can be taught in schools and there's a lot of animosity at, at school board meetings. Well, a hundred years ago, uh, there was something similar going on with the Scopes trial. So then it wasn't teaching, you know, transgenderism, it was teaching evolution. And once again, in the 1920s, uh, conservative legislators were very successful in passing laws banning that. And that's what the Scope trial, the Scopes trial in Tennessee in 1925 was all about. There was a teacher named John Scopes who was charged with teaching evolution in school, which violated the Tennessee law that forbade, that forbade teachers from, from even mentioning uh, the concept of evolution. The nation was sort of captivated uh, then as now by the proceedings to that trial. And uh, John Scopes himself later uh, joked that, uh, you know, they, they've, people pretty much forgot about him altogether. Uh, he, he once said that, you know, he furnished the body that the, for, the, for the courtroom, and that was about it. Uh, the, the proceedings and the, the talk about them took on a life of their own. Uh, of course, you know, you've got Clarence Darrow uh, and, and William Jennings Bryant, two, of, uh, two very prominent figures in, in Amer early American 19th century, uh, or rather early 20th century American history, leading each side of that debate in the Scopes trial. Um, the lines are not quite so clearly defined today, but classrooms are still a, a battleground now, and in, in, in many states, uh, legislators at the state level are trying to once again control 
what can be taught and what can't. So you have legislation that wants to ban uh, critical race theory, which isn't being taught in schools. So it's kind of difficult to ban something that isn't there, uh, but also to restrict um, teachings that are considered um, too favorable to transgender. Uh, or there's even, they call it, the critics call it an ideology. I don't really know if you can call transgenderism an ideology. I don't think it really meets the standard for that. Um, I do think that parents m may have a valid point if they if there are books in a in a library for school age children. I'm talking like grade school, like elementary school. You know, if there's explicit sexual material in there, I can. That's sort of a valid point to see why they would not want young kids exposed to that. I, I think that's valid. But what never gets talked about in those uh, discussions is: Are the do the books in question actually have? sexually explicit passages, or do they just have a person who is trans in them and the critics accuse the authors of the same thing? Well, it's not the same thing. Just because you have a character in, the, in a fictional book that's trans, that does not mean that it's sexually explicit. So I can understand the point about keeping that kind of sexually explicit material away from kids, young kids. I, I think any parent would agree with that. But I don't agree that just because there's a character that's trans, that's automatically explicit sexually. It's not. Those are two very different things. But either way, so the, the classrooms are once again uh, centers of controversy, and that's another example of the, the similarities between the 1920s and the 2020s. And, and the reason for it is pretty simple. Um, you know, when, when you're going through a time of upheaval like we are today, as they were 100 years ago, you know, the, the future seems more uncertain than ever. And so with the future up for grabs, um, we feel like the common feeling is we're, we're not going to settle any of these arguments or solve any of these problems right away. Um, it's going to be up to the future generations to, to solve them. And so everybody starts fighting for control of what the future generation is going to think. Um, and that's, that's a battle no one can win. You can't win that with legislation. You can't win it with, with uh, the, the young generation are going to be their own unique. They're going to have their own thoughts, their own ideas. They're going to see things the way that they want to. They're not going to always listen to the generations that came before them or that come after. Um, but that's another thing, you know, the, one of the dominant songs of the 1920s was uh, Cole Porter's Let's Misbehave. And so once that started, um, I would argue that America's youth have pretty much been in a perpetual state of rebellion ever since. And so each generation wants to push the boundaries of behavior towards what they think are acceptable and further away from what older generations uh, found to be uh, acceptable. And I, I think that continues today. Um, you know, in the 1920s, it was, the, it was driving a car or going on dates without chaperones. And each generation, it, it moved to something different. And today, it's, it's, um, it focuses a lot on uh, transgendered youth and, and how they're treated by schools and by our institutions. I would argue that people deserve to be treated the same, whether they, whether they are trans or not. So legislation that bans someone from an activity that everybody else can do simply because they're trans is discriminatory. That's, that's not the American way. The sports thing, I think that's sort of unique to this, to this uh, decade. I haven't seen that before. I, I kind of feel like maybe the answer there is a separate category. Uh, so you have a, a male category, a female category, and a trans category for sports. Um, I'm not sure how, how, how else we can solve that and still be fair to everyone. Um, but that, that's something that we'll have to see how it plays out. Um, but we've seen that particular example, and I bring that up here in Kentucky because of Riley Gaines and um, the, uh, a lot of controversy over whether or not 
um, there's unfairness in uh, sports competitions. And what enables that conversation to get so big is, is the tools of mass communication that we now take for granted, right? So we're all, most of us have been used to using the internet for quite some time, and uh, it's just become a, a part of everyday life. But the ability to speak to, to many different people just from your, your home, like I'm doing right now to record this podcast, wasn't something that always existed. It first gained prominence uh, in the 1920s when radio started spreading and became really popular. So that technology become, uh, became cost affordable for the average person. And so now you had radios in homes, audio, automobile makers started putting them in cars. And so you could listen wherever you went. And one speaker could reach, you know, an unlimited number of listeners, uh, which brought some benefits, right? If you want to hear a symphony, you don't have to necessarily go to a concert hall. You can turn on the radio. If you wanted to hear a, a perspective from a different city instead of the one in the next room, you could listen to radio, right? Same thing uh, with the Internet today. Uh, but the downside was exactly the same. So whereas we have, you know, Alex Jones on the Internet today, 100 years ago we had Father Conklin right? The radio priest. Um, if you're not familiar with that, I would encourage doing some research on that. Um, that was an, one of the first individuals who gained popularity uh, through what today would be called hate speech. I, I've never liked that term, but um, to simplify, that's, that's what it would have been called. And it was, and it was rather popular for, for quite a bit of time before uh, the Second World War. So you always see uh, with these new mass communications tools, you see extremists taking advantage of it and using that platform to spread not positive messages, but negative messages. Uh, they spread almost as well, if not better, um, than um, what we would like to call positive messages. And I think uh, 100 years ago or today, the reason for that is we don't really stop and think about, excuse me, what the mechanism is, right? Like, why are, are extremist messages so successful? Why do people listen to those? Why do they gain such a following? Um, my thought on that is extremists are emotional gunslingers. They aim for the heart, not the head. They're not looking to convince you with a rational argument. They want to push your emotional buttons. And when you live in a time of great upheaval, where there's all these changes going on and so much anxiety and fear about the future, that's when you start seeing more people listen to extremist uh, messages and extremist arguments and that's why they gain traction and this is not something that's it's not I'm not blaming technology I don't think that's that's true at all it, it's existed a long time before well before uh, not just the internet well before radio this is a phenomenon that's as old as as human society itself and one of my favorite historical quotes that I use a lot uh, from Thucydides, who, by the way, was a, an exiled Athenian general. He wrote a history of the Peloponnesian War, so this is well over 2,000 years ago. But listen to what he wrote about the conditions that led up to and were seen during the Peloponnesian War, because they'll sound very familiar to modern audiences. So he said, Thucydides wrote, quote, In peace and prosperity, states and individuals have better sentiments because they do not find themselves suddenly confronted by imperious necessities. But war takes away the easy supply of daily wants, and so proves a rough master that brings most men's character to a level with their fortunes. Revolution thus ran its course from city to city, and the places which it arrived at last, from having heard what had been done before, 
carry to a still greater excess the refinement of their inventions, as manifested in the cunning of their enterprises and the atrocities of their reprisals. Words had to change their ordinary meaning and take that which was now given them. Reckless audacity came to be considered the courage of a loyal ally, and prudent hesitation, specious cowardice. Moderation was held to be a cloak for unmanliness. Ability to see all sides of a question came to be seen as inaptness to act on any. Frantic violence became the attribute of manliness. Cautious plotting, a justifiable means of self-defense. And here's the kicker. Quote, the advocate of extreme measures was always trustworthy. His opponent, a man to be suspected. Now that was 2,000 years ago, well before there was any kind of mass communication technology. You saw the same types of dynamics uh, playing out. And I use that piece of Thucydides to remind us that the ultimate agent of human, excuse me, the ultimate agent of upheaval, rather, is human nature. So we come together, we form societies, and we, we seek knowledge, and we innovate, and we create these new technologies. We create governments. We develop cultures. Um, but the same, the same qualities that drive us to do all of those things and to unlock the secrets of nature or to find better ways to govern ourselves, um, underneath all of that, you know, you've got ambition and curiosity, and those two qualities often bring us into conflict with each other. And sometimes they, they cause changes to happen all really fast and all at once. And that is the upheaval that we saw in the 1920s and the kind of upheaval, upheaval excuse me, that we're seeing today. So this, this cycle of human activity is a, is a pattern that repeats itself uh, over and over again. And so that is, in fact, the rhyme uh, of history. So it's not just 2020 to 1920, but it was, it's also... 2,000 years ago and at different periods uh, from then to now, we'll see this. And I imagine no matter what technologies we create, whether it's artificial intelligence or something else, we'll still see this pattern play out because human nature uh, stays the same. And we will see our, ourselves uh, create new inventions and create new, new nations and new types of culture, and yet also uh, in, find ourselves in conflict with each other from the same forces that brought us our, our progress. So that is why I think, that is the reason why I think we're seeing uh, the rhyming 20s today. Uh, it's just something that's very old, and uh, I, I expect that we'll see quite a bit more of that in the future. So that's, that's really it. That's what I wanted to talk about for this episode, which is to go into uh, the parallels between the 1920s and the 2020s, um, what they mean or what they might mean, and um, why those things happen. And I think underneath it all, it's just uh, this is just human nature playing out a pattern that we've seen uh, throughout history. I hope that simply because the, the 2020s are repeating a, a little bit of the uh, 1920s, I certainly hope we don't see that in the 30s. We definitely don't want to see uh, the rise of fascism and totalitarianism again. Uh, and we certainly don't want to see uh, another major world conflict like we saw uh, kick off in the 1930s. So we hope that, that doesn't happen. And it's my hope that by understanding the types of things that are going on and how they're similar to events in the past, we may be able to find ways to prevent the worst parts from, uh, from repeating. So we don't want that kind of rhyme. Um, and that, that, of course, will be the, uh, a subject for a future, uh, future show. Uh, but that's, that's just uh, where I was going with this and why I think it's important to talk about it. Anyway, I hope everybody had a, a good time listening. I really appreciate your attention, and I hope everybody has a great day. Thanks. <laughs>